Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard... The nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have my amazing friend and colleague, Christina Safran, with me. Christina is the co-founder and CEO of Equip, a virtual program that delivers modern eating disorder treatment through family-based care, that promises lasting recovery at home. Prior to Equip, Christina founded Project Heal, a leading grassroots eating disorder nonprofit dedicated to treatment access. Christina is an Ashoka Fellow, a Forbes 30 Under 30 Social Entrepreneur, and a Facebook Community Leadership Fellow, and graduated from Harvard College with a bachelor's degree in psychology in May 2014. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me here. It's wonderful to be here with you and I'm excited for our conversation. First of all, I'd love you to give our listeners a bit of an insight into your own eating disorder journey. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 10 years old and struggled really throughout my adolescence. I definitely come from a family steeped in anxiety, depression, OCD, neuroticism, self-criticism, and eating disorders. And for me, it was simple as a babysitter going on a diet. That was my initial catalyst into the eating disorder when I was 10. I always say that I'm privileged for many reasons, but one of which is that as somebody in a naturally smaller body, when I lost weight, it became visible and people had to take action quickly because they could see it, which we know is not often the case. My parents caught it early, brought me to a doctor. I was really fortunate. And God, this is back 20 years ago. So really before family-based treatment was even brought over to the United States. But my parents found somebody who was had the same kind of philosophy and ethos of family-based treatment, really wanted to keep me out of the hospital. We were, I was on the borderline of needing to go to the hospital and she really wanted to keep me out and helped us find a nutritionist and a therapist that we worked with. I remember, I don't actually remember all that much because my brain was pretty malnourished, but we saw many providers each week and I got better or so I thought, went to middle school, joked with my 
family that joke with my friends that I couldn't have an eating disorder anymore if I tried. And unfortunately, it wasn't the case. I started relapsing when I was 13. Looking back, I think it was a combination of my parents were going through a hard point in their own marriage, were fighting a lot, and this was my way of internalizing it. And then also I began to enter puberty and it freaked me out. And so what started as many of us know, let me lose two or three pounds, start quickly spiraling into back into anorexia was essentially not in high school. My entire freshman year of high school, I spent my entire freshman year cycling in and out of four different hospitals for a total of seven months. This is really the chronic period of my illness where I wanted to be sick forever when doctors told me you're going to be a chronic case. You're never going to get better from this. I said, that is cool. That is what I want. When I got out of my fourth hospitalization and started to slip, my parents said, all right, Christina, you can go to a residential facility out West for a year. You can try this new family-based treatment approach where we monitor every single thing that you eat. And at the time, I wanted nothing more than to go to treatment. I talk about my experience in treatment as something that I loved. I felt safe. It was easy. I didn't have to deal with triggers. I was with people who understood me. I don't know about you, but I never really want to go back to high school again. And the idea of being out of that was really comforting to me. But I always say it was the healthiest decision I ever made when I was sick to say that's the easy part. It's coming out and doing this in real life that's hard. And it only gets harder the more I go in and out. I missed my entire freshman year of high school. And if I miss my sophomore year, like I might never get out of this thing. And so I said to my parents, let's try this family-based treatment thing. And we saw a family-based treatment therapist, a separate nutritionist, a separate doctor. I actually had a separate individual therapist as well, a psychiatrist, and worked throughout that year. And while I hated every single second of it, it was absolutely the thing that got me better. I, My brain was not in a place that I could keep myself healthy alone without the support of others around me. And that was certainly my road to recovery. It's so interesting because over in Australia and New Zealand, what I can speak to that is that when generally when someone embarks on family-based therapy, you're not allowed a dietitian, you're not allowed a therapist. It is family-based treatment and your parents know what they're doing and that's what has to happen. And that's why it's just so exciting that you've been able to use your experience to start Equip and we'll talk about that soon, but it's just so refreshing to hear you speak about your experience with family-based treatment because I think there's so it's delivered in so many different ways and I think that's why everybody has different experiences depending on how it gets delivered. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right and I think the cornerstone of family-based treatment that is important is This is an illness that requires you to fight your brain many times a day. It is an illness in which characteristic of the illness is not knowing how sick you are and not wanting to get better. And so really, when you understand the neurobiology and the etiology of the illness, it's not only ineffective, but it's mean to treat it as an individual. These are such powerful brain disorders, and you really do need people around you to help you stay healthy. And yet, like you said, like, that's the cornerstone of it, but it doesn't mean that 
everything about FBT is perfect. And I think you bring up a great one that you know, not just in New Zealand and Australia, it's everywhere that family-based treatment traditionally does not come with a dietitian because the philosophy is parental empowerment and parents want to feed your child, to which so many parents have said to us, that's the most disempowering thing I've ever heard. Like, clearly not. Don't. And so we really did require that support. I think the other thing that was really, I was really aware of going through family-based treatment was that it felt really infantilizing and Mm -hmm. really patronizing, especially as very precocious, independent 15-year-old to suddenly have my parents monitoring every single thing I was eating. I really craved somebody that I could talk to. And I was fortunate that my parents did say, okay, we'll go outside. And as you're doing well, and you're following the instructions and the meal plan, that is going to be a reward for you to get to talk to somebody outside. And then I also had this beautiful peer relationship in my co-founder of Project Peel, who frankly was further along in recovery than I was at that time. And she was invaluable. I remember many times in our family therapy appointment where I would storm out of the room in tears, not wanting to do what they said that I needed to do, not wanting to gain more weight. And I called her and she could really empathize with what I was going through and how hard it was, but also push me to keep going in a way that nobody else who hadn't really been there could have been able to get through to me and to push me. And that was when we started to think about How do we make sure that everyone has access to this treatment that works? We also said family-based treatment is the only evidence-based treatment for kids, adolescents, and young adults with eating disorders. It only results in full recovery for 47% of adolescents. So like, it's not great. It really left a lot of room to be desired. And I think that's the beauty of having not just myself, but really my colleagues and the people I've been able to bring over to us that have worked with thousands of families who've had success, but also who haven't had success to really understand from them, what more did you need from how do we get this to work for a hundred percent of people and get a hundred percent of people to full recovery? What did it feel like to you when you were in the midst of your eating disorder? The first thing that comes to mind is numb and frankly, hazy and that I don't remember a whole lot of it because my brain was so incredibly malnourished. What I do remember is how physically exhausting it was to do anything. Like there, there are a couple of really vivid memories that I have. One is I remember walking around high school and walking up the stairs at high school and just feeling like I don't know if I can take another step. Like I feel physically faint. Like this is expending so much energy. Even like breathing was hard. I remember that really vividly sitting in classes and like having trouble breathing. That was incredibly scary. I remember at certain points feeling like I didn't want to do this anymore. Probably the scariest points I felt when I realized that I didn't want to do this anymore and that I was killing myself and that I was miserable and that I was throwing my life away. And yet the mental rules that I had for myself, the compulsions to engage in my behaviors were so strong that I couldn't bring myself to do the things that I knew that I actually needed to do. I couldn't as much as I wanted to. And that was perhaps the scariest time. And I remember 
completely losing my personality. I used to be incredibly vivacious and fun-loving and extroverted. And I remember just really becoming a shell of myself and not not being able to engage with anything. I mean, my entire brain, I'm sure you can relate to this, was just consumed by food and my body and what the scale had said that morning and really nothing outside of that. It's definitely a total takeover. And I think that's what people don't understand is that it is all-consuming. Every moment of every day and even in your sleep, it consumes you. So you don't ever get a break. And I think that's where... And often say to people, what's the difference with coaching? And I'm like, well, you have to understand eating disorders don't have office hours. So an eating disorder is a very much a 24-7 thing. And mm-hmm. then, so therefore mm-hmm. you need to be able to reach out to people just between nine to five because <laughs> an eating yes. disorder doesn't Yeah, That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we've built this to be really accessible always to people when people need it with a quip if it's okay if I go there you build all these families this so essentially backtracking we took the learnings from these patients and families and said what more did you need and so a big thing was more than a one-to-one therapist right we need a we need more individuals at the very least a therapist a dietitian an MD a psychiatrist and then importantly and I think this is really the secret sauce a peer mentor and a family mentor, people who've been there, people who understand how hard the recovery journey is, people who've been in your shoes and can say, I know this sucks and keep yeah. going. It's possible and it's worth it. Who can provide that hope and inspiration and like a tangible example of getting to the other side of the recovery journey. And the same thing for family members. Like this is the treatment that gets people better. And it is also incredibly challenging, especially for an illness again, that you don't want to get better. You don't know how sick you are. That's a core part of the illness. When I was going through it, I would fight my parents, often physically fight them to get the food that they needed to in me. And so my mom, she had tried so hard to start her own support group in New York City for parents. She couldn't find anybody who was going through the same thing and so desperately just wanted somebody who could see her and see where she is and provide hope and motivation and also just the the shoulder to cry on and vent to and couldn't find that. So I think that's incredibly important in keeping people engaged in treatment. I talk a lot about, you know, and I think this is true with SBT, you can have the best evidence-based treatments in the world, but if people don't engage in them, they're not going to work. And so this peer and family mentorship really enables people to engage in them. It also needed to be 100% virtual because access is so incredibly challenging in big metropolitan cities and also certainly in more rural places of the country and the world. What's been really exciting is that we've found that fully virtual treatment is not only it not only enables access, but actually provides better quality. We actually think it's better for eating disorders. And it's really because I talk a lot about this idea that you can't build a life worth living if you're not living life. And so certainly, I think I've had so many people that I was in treatment with now for 17 years ago who spent so many years of their life in and out of these facilities and haven't had the opportunity to be in high school, be in college, build relationships, build jobs. It makes recovery so much harder. But even when I was going to like many appointments a week when I was 10, I didn't have the opportunity to like be in theater, be in soccer, hang out with my friends after school. Really, we want people to be engaging in life so they have reasons to drown out their eating disorder. 
And then the other thing is that it really enables families to bring their whole village to care, right? This is a family illness and it is a hard battle every single day. And the burden on families is perhaps the highest for eating disorders than for any other mental illness. And so when you can really tag in many family members, right? Not just mom and dad. And we very much believe in a chosen family philosophy. So whoever is around you, it's just, you need supports, but the ability to really tag in your village and have them come to treatment with you would never be possible in a brick and mortar session Tuesday at 2 p.m. So really enabling families to, to bring their village to care. And then the final thing is that it is structured. And I love how you mentioned that eating disorders don't clock out. I think go see your therapist every Thursday at 4 p.m. is just not a strategy that is super effective for eating disorders when you're literally having to fight your brain six times a day. And so the program is really designed to deliver unlimited support, unlimited sessions, unlimited messaging with your care team. It is there when you need it. I think a lot about this idea that we want to deliver just the right amount of support in the moment when people need it. That can be a 15-minute session leading up to dinner where you learn that you're going to a new restaurant and you're like, oh my God, SOS, like peer mentor, please get on the phone with me and walk me through this because I want to make sure that I'm prepared. When mom is feeding her daughter a new fear food and she starts to freak out and the mom is like, I don't know what to do. SOS, let me, let me, you know, message with my family mentor. Um, You decide that you're going to go away for the weekend somewhere new and you, how to, eat, how to pack for, let's say, a a camping trip to make sure that you're hitting your refueling needs. You can take a quick 15-minute session with your nutritionist, with your dietitian. You can be pushed skills, right? Push meditations, push DBT skills, really in the moment when you need it, but also like not overdosing people on treatment they don't need. I think this is different than there are many kind of virtual IOPs that are springing up all over the place where people have to be on the computer for many hours a day. And that's not what we want. We don't want people to be in treatment for many hours a day. We want to deliver just the right amount of support and say, go out, build that life worth living, build up triggers and bring them back to your treatment team. And the virtual format really does allow and enable that. And then finally, it needs to be long lasting because we know that recovery takes a long time, right? The literature right now says it takes seven years to recover. I think that's atrocious. And I think we can do a lot better than that. But we have good evidence to suggest that use your best chance of recovery if after you get to full weight restoration and complete cessation of behaviors, you stay with your treatment team for another 18 months actually is your best chance of recovery. And so how do we really design this program to be there ongoing for people when they need it, understanding that, yeah, hopefully when you start in month one, you're going to titrate down the amount of time that you need with the treatment team by month eight, but we're there. We're collecting symptoms, we're collecting behaviors. And hey, guess what? If you don't get into the college of your choice, you have a terrible breakup and your symptoms exacerbate in month eight, we're right there to catch you and titrate back up the support that you need when you need it in the moment. And then the final thing I'll say is that yeah, I think you have to treat the comorbidities simultaneously. I don't think I know that you have to treat the comorbidities simultaneously. You need to deal with the anxiety, the depression, the OCD, the PTSD, everything that comes along with this, or else you're just setting people up for a relapse simultaneously. And so making sure that we're not just treating the eating disorder, but really treating those comorbidities simultaneously. Every single element 
of Equip makes me so excited. It's so refreshing. <laughs> I cannot wait for it to be offered in Australia. I am so proud <laughs> of both you and Erin and what you're achieving with it. It's just, it is so exciting to see. And you're just going from strength to strength. And I think that is, I know that is because the core of it. You've got this lived experience. You've also got all these experiences working with families and knowing what works and what doesn't and what is needed. And your core philosophy around it all is just absolutely brilliant. And this idea that we don't want people sitting on computers all day and having the virtual element so that they can be going out, living life, experiencing things, not being in a bubble, so to speak, and then coming out of treatment. And as you say, having to then deal with all the triggers we're dealing with the triggers in the moment and dealing with the comorbidities rather than, nope, that doesn't happen. We're only doing this, which is such a prescriptive. And I feel quite punitive looking at eating disorder treatment. And as you say, that infantilized, like that that feeling of almost being disempowered in a way by FPT, that's, that doesn't happen with Equip, which is just wonderful. And I want to backtrack yeah. a little bit. And I don't, I want people who don't know to understand that you also not only founded Equip, but also Project Heal, as I said in your introduction. And now I'm very familiar with the Project Heal story, but it's an absolutely amazing one. And so would you just be able to share with our listeners what led you to starting Project Heal and what you set out to achieve with it? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing that comes to mind is what spurred me to start it. Anorexia gone good. We talk a lot about the temperament traits that make you vulnerable to an eating disorder, phenomenal temper- temperament traits when you channel them in the right direction. And so that perfectionism, that type A energy, that ability to hyper-focus on a goal, narrow out distractions, phenomenal traits when you channel them, when you use them for good instead of against yourself. And that was definitely my story. So as I mentioned, I was really lucky to get evidence-based treatment and to have my insurance pay for that and to have my family afford to pay for what my insurance didn't pay for. I was fortunate to be in a smaller body. And so when I got sick, it became visible. People had to take action, fortunate for a number of reasons. But I, when I got into recovery, I learned that 80% of the 30 million Americans with eating disorders don't get treatment. It is an atrocious treatment landscape that is incredibly inaccessible and perhaps the most inequitable of all mental health conditions as it, as it pertains to treatment access. And so really it just started as, this is horrible. I got to do something about it. And I joined forces with somebody that I had met in treatment, Leanna Rosenman, who was further along in her recovery journey than I was at that point, frankly. And uh, yeah, we just, we held our first fundraiser at 15 years old and we had 150 people come and share their own stories. And we said, oh my God, this is an issue that this is a huge prevalent issue that nobody is talking about and we need to be talking about it. And so it took on a grassroots life of its own. We had 40 chapters before we had a single staff member. The mission was really, again, to drive access to care and actually just fundraise for treatment. But in the meantime, I think we really were able to work with just thousands of people who were struggling and their family members learn from clinicians and researchers about the gaps in the field and the current state of treatment and really saw it as a, a vehicle to really transform the field in, in, in many ways. I think the reason, one of the big catalysts for me to move on to the board of directors, I'm still heavily involved with Project Heal and then move on to starting a clip is because I 
one was just very aware that the eating disorder nonprofit landscape is just so underfunded and it was going to be really hard to drive the transformational change for millions in the in in the nonprofit sector via fundraising and then also i started project heal in 2008 which was the same year that the mental health parity act was passed and while it is a very important law the sort of unintended consequence of the law was that private equity poured a lot of money into eating disorder residential centers and i saw the year that i started project appeal more and more people apply to us with access to residential care and no quality outpatient care and it was just always something that really perplexed me and made absolutely no sense and so i think this was something that always ate away at me and throughout the years i started talking with clinicians and researchers and understood that a lot of residentials are not evidence based i saw that the relapse rate was upwards of 50% and i saw that no real work was being done into really thinking about quality in addition to access. And so sat down with a number of payers three years ago to talk about, this doesn't make sense. You're spending money on care that doesn't work super well. And yet there's good quality outpatient treatments and they're just completely inaccessible. You have to fly to UC San Diego from all over the world to get them. Like what gives? And they said, you're right, this doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. And so I saw a real opportunity to work with the American healthcare system when we're talking about access for all. We need to partner with the payers. We need to educate the payers on what eating disorders are, what proper treatment looks like. And in the meantime, I see Equip and Project Heals being incredibly synergistic while I work with Equip to change the existing treatment system. That's going to take a long time, especially Medicaid, uh, government insurance in the United States, takes a really long time to get to. And so while we work to fix the system, many people are falling through the cracks. Unfortunately, thousands and thousands of people are falling through the cracks every single day. And Project Heal works to help those people in the moment. It's so fabulous that there is such a synergy between the two and that I think it's wonderful that you've remained on the board of Project Heal and you've seen you've seen a gap and gone, this is what I need to do in order to make the biggest difference that I can, which is just amazing because you you truly are. You you see these things and you've got this, these visions and you go out there and you make them happen, which is fabulous because it's all very well for people to think, you know what, this would be great, that don't actually then have the gumption to go out there and go, I'm going to make it happen. So full credit to you for that. Thank now, you. Thank you. So it's temperament traits, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And as you say, unfortunately for both of us, there were many years where we didn't quite harness them in the way that we needed to, but we've got our act together now and we're doing it. So exactly. that's what exactly. Now, who is eligible to access Equip's services? Yeah, so right now we are treating folks ages 6 to 24. We are going to be expanding to adults beyond the age of 24 in early 2023. So that is coming pretty soon. And we right now are serving people all across the United States. So in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia. I am very hopeful that in the coming years, we will also be expanding internationally as well. 
Fabulous. I'll be very excited for that day to happen. Now, you are getting some amazing results. After eight weeks of treatment, 71% of patients report a reduction in eating disorder symptoms and two-thirds report improvements in mood. In that time, 96% of caregivers report feeling more confident in caring for their loved one. What do you believe it is about a quit that makes it such a game changer in the eating disorder treatment space? Yeah, I think that, again, it goes back to that you can have the best evidence-based treatments in the world, but if people don't engage in them, they won't work. And so we've made this accessible to people. I mean, there were something like 5,000 eating disorder specialists in the country. Only about 20% of them utilized evidence-based treatment for 5 million people who struggle. So clearly there was a supply and demand imbalance that we've been able to really train people up in evidence-based treatment. Majority of people just could not access it at all. And then even if they could access it, it was subpar. It was a really hard treatment. It left a lot of people feeling like this was impossible to do alone and like they had nobody who was in their corner and could vent with them and could cry with them and could provide hope and inspiration and tangible tools and tricks. And so I think we've really increased access increased engagement, and then also really increased cultural humility. I think this is incredibly important that this is a service that works for everybody and is really targeted to everybody. And we've been, my co-founder and I have been very, very aware of the fact that we are, we fit the mold. We fit the stereotype of what people think eating disorders look like. And yet we know that eating disorders affect everybody. They don't have a look. And so it's been really amazing to bring on people on our care team that are actually reflective of the true diversity of people who suffer. So we can match families with BIPOC care teams, LGBTQ care teams, transgender care teams that have experienced poverty, that live in larger bodies. And we know that when you can connect with people who share that same lived experience, it's going to go so much further to have a peer mentor who is also transgender and can talk about how that interacts with their experience of an eating disorder and talk openly about their fears and their experience. Like, that just goes so, so far. And so I think in addition to having that peer and family mentorship, the fact that we've really tailored it to be culturally competent has been an absolute game changer. So important. Diversity is so important and lived experience. You and I both know the power of that. And I was really heartened to read that more than 60% of Equip has lived experience. And I think that is just wonderful because it does make such a difference. Actually, only yesterday I was speaking to a potential client and she was saying, look, I just want to talk to you first because I spent the last 20 years in and out of treatment and they all say that I'm a hopeless case and I'm really hoping this is going to be different. What's going to be different about it? And I said to her, Mm -hmm. I get it. I understand what's going on in your brain and I'm going to be there when you need me to be. And I gave her examples about, as you say, like before going out to a restaurant, freaking out about the menu, call me, we'll go through it together. I'll help you decide. When you're having a day where you're over-focusing on your thighs, message me, I'll help you through it. And she actually just started to cry and she was like, are you actually serious? And I said, yes. That's what I do. Yeah. That's part of what I do. Yeah. And she said, I think this could maybe help. 
So let's give it a go. And it's those moments of people realizing in essence, using our lived experience to help could be seen as being quite simple. Obviously, we know it's incredibly complex and nuanced, but the essence of it is quite simple. We're using what we know from our very own hellish experiences with this insidious illness to help others light the way through. And I always say to people, if I had someone, I didn't personally have someone with lived experience guiding that way for me. If I had, I honestly don't believe I would have suffered for 15 years. I believe I would have gotten out of it much sooner. So it's just wonderful to see that it doesn't surprise me at all, considering you and Erin and your journeys, but the fact that there is such a lived experience um, thread running through a quit. I often get families contacting me for coaching support that have had really traumatic experiences with FBT. And I love the fact that Equip does such a fabulous job of wrapping those extra levels of support around the entire family unit. How key do you think that extra support that they get is important in the success of the treatment? We look at, I love the the statistic before around 96% of caregivers feeling more confident in caring for their loved one. Mm -hmm. My whole heart just, I Mm -hmm. loved reading that where I get parents coming to me who feel completely torn apart, demoralized and feel like they've failed as a parent when they've spent the last couple of months trying to attempt FBT. And the word I hear again and again from parents is, oh, we failed at that. And it breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah. We've had so many patients come to Equip who thought that they failed at FBT. So many families who tried FBT. And I think a lot of people think they have done FBT and haven't really done FBT. And I also think that FBT is really hard. And if you don't have that layer of support around you, and frankly, your child doesn't have that layer of support, your loved one doesn't have that person who they can go to to vent, to make them feel supported and heard and motivated. Yeah, it doesn't always, it doesn't always work. It only works in full recovery for 47% of adolescents. So I think that we are not traditional FBT. We are not, we are FBT plus or really just the equip model. And it's a whole different model and we've designed it to be different. I think the other thing I hear in addition to we failed FBT is like, there's a lot of stigma around which families are going to be appropriate for FBT and that intact two-parent households who are financially secure can do it, but this is not going to work for single parents. It's not going to work for people in poverty. It's not going to work for divorced parents. It's not going to work for parents who have their own eating disorder issues. And it can't, it does. And you need to design it to be intentional. But yeah, we have, I mean, we have families who are all of the things that I've just listed and they are getting better with it. I think that also stems from having family mentors who share that lived experience. We're going to pair a family who's living in poverty with a family mentor who's experienced poverty and has pre-fed her daughter through, through poverty, through homelessness, right? Like you, you need to have that shared lived experience and someone who really understands what you're going through. I want to touch on the example of families who have their own eating and food and body challenges, because I think this is so important and such a beautiful part of what we do. FBT 
comes from an agnostic philosophy of, and we don't blame parents. Parents do not cause eating disorders 100% full stop. And there are things that parents are doing and loved ones are doing that are often unintentionally reinforcing the eating disorder. And we all grew up in this horrible culture that is so obsessed with this thin ideal and so imbued with diet culture and fat phobia. We are all swimming in the same waters and have just grown up living in this. And we really approach it from a non-shaming, non-judgmental perspective. Everyone has had harm done to them. And in order to help your loved one recover, how do you also do the work on yourself to come out of this? This is, again, where the family mentors come in is so powerful because how powerful is it to hear a family member who, how powerful is it to have a family mentor who can say to you as a mom, look, like, I was the same way. I had my own body image issues. I was terrified of gaining weight as my daughter was in treatment. And I really had to look at myself and say, what message is it sending to your kid when you're sitting there eating a side salad while you're feeding her fettuccine Alfredo? You can't do that, right? It's so powerful. And really, a therapist can't say that. A doctor can't say that. But another parent who's been there, who's been in your mm-hmm. shoes, who's approaching it from a non-shaming, non-judgmental perspective, really can. We also have a program that we deliver as part of a clip called the body project. So it's been around for over 20 years and it's a four week body empowerment program where we really take people through our society's messed up expectations around food and body and the thin ideal and really actively challenge those. And it's been shown in research two years after the program to significantly reduce thin ideal internalization, body image dissatisfaction and eating disorder symptoms and behaviors. So we have not only our patients going through this, but their families. And the transformation is just absolutely incredible. I mean, you are able to transform an entire family when you do that. So that is some of the most exciting work that I think that we do at Equip. And also to go further on this point of this is really FBT plus and not traditional FBT. I think that the work around body image and fat phobia and health at every size This is like a missing ingredient, a critical missing ingredient in so much of the treatment landscape. And so I think the work that we are doing within the treatment program is preparing not only patients, but their entire family systems to fight the eating disorder and stay in recovery for good. You're amazing. You truly are. You, I, Every word, I just sit here and resonate with you. Like, yes, yes, you're a kindred spirit. Really appreciate that. (laughs) Now, you recently raised a very impressive 58 million USD in a Series B funding round in support of your mission to transform eating disorder treatment and the cultural conversation around body image. Now, you choose investment partners who have a connection to the Equip story and have had their own lived experience, which I love. Why is this so important to you? Oh, it's everything. I mean, I was pretty skeptical of for-profit healthcare for a really long time. And I ended up making the decision that nonprofit was not capitalized enough and academia wasn't risk tolerant enough. And Aaron and I needed to try a new approach to create the transformational change that we wanted to see in this field. But I think 
it is critical who you choose to go on that mission with you. And frankly, we've seen the drawbacks of private equity entering this market and really being profit driven above all else. Look, I think you can absolutely do well by doing good. And there was an opportunity here to say, look, we're actually spending a lot of money on care that doesn't work really well. And if you give people holistic outpatient evidence-based care that is long lasting that gets them to full recovery, it ends up being not only better for patients and families, but all more affordable. It's better for the bottom line. And as you go into a value-based care framework where you're actually getting paid for patients getting better, that is a win-win of doing well by doing good. But it really depends on who you choose as an investor, how they're going to pressure you and whether patients getting better is going to be at the forefront or profits are going to be at the forefront. And we needed to be so intentional as making sure that patients getting better at the forefront, everyone was aligned on that. There was absolutely no question about that. And that access and being a mission-driven company, like we have a mission to get to every single person with an eating disorder, to get to Medicaid, to get to Medicare. It's going to be less profitable. We could have certainly done private pay patients and just taken the highest paying commercial insurance companies. But we really were clear with our investors from the very beginning, like we want to get to everyone and we need you to be on this journey with us as a true mission. And that's what we found. And so I think it it makes all the difference in the kind of company that you're able to build. Absolutely. What will the funding allow you to do? Some of the things that we talked about, so expand to adults. I was going to say expand to all 50 states, but we're already there. So expand internationally, hopefully in the coming years, and really continue making sure that we have partnerships with all insurance carriers in the United States so that nobody has to pay out of pocket for this. And if you had unlimited funds, what would you ultimately like to achieve with Equip? My mission has been incredibly clear, which is to ensure that every single person, I used to say in the U.S., but you're encouraging me to think much broader than that internationally, has access to treatment that works. If I accomplish that, I will retire happily and sleep very well at night. I think there is an opportunity more broadly to really have an influence on this toxic cultural obsession with thinness and mm-hmm. diet culture yeah. that really makes so many people vulnerable to an eating disorder and also makes full recovery incredibly challenging for a lot of people and makes recovery sort of a daily active battle that you have to be so countercultural to make sure that you can live a fully recovered life. So I think that is something that we're beginning to start to chip away at internally within Equip, but I'm excited to bring that work more external as well. I am so excited to see these next chapters evolve. It's going to be not only exciting for those of us with lived experience watching on, but also for those who are still in the trenches fighting the brave fight because what you are going to provide truly is, I mean, it already is game changing, but to be able to extend that for it to be accessible to even more people is just going to be phenomenal. Now, thank you, Millie. Well, I mean it. I'm so proud of you. What is the most valuable thing that your own eating disorder journey has taught you? 
I think the most valuable thing that my eating disorder journey has taught me is persistence. It's that old adage of fall down nine times, get up a 10th time. Just because you failed, just because you've heard a no, doesn't mean that's how it's going to be forever. You can always get back up. And if you set your mind to something, it's going to be a tough road and a tough journey. And it'll not always be a linear journey, but you can accomplish what you said to what you set your mind to. You can do really hard things as long as you're persistent and you have grit. I completely agree with that. In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support a loved one that's going through an eating disorder? That's a good question. Really approaching it with care and concern and not judgment. I think really talking to people not about like, you're going to the gym too much and you're not eating enough, but like, I'm concerned that you're smiling less. And like, you seem like you're not as happy as you used to be. You don't have as much energy and I'm worried your sparkle seems to have faded a little bit. And how do I want to help you bring that back? So really approaching it with concern, with curiosity, telling people that you're going to be there to listen to them. And then really supporting people with the day-to-day of recovery. It's so powerful to just sit and share a meal with somebody and be there for them in their hardest moments and say, I'm going to be here with you and I'm going to sit through this with you and we're going to, I'm going to go bite for bite with you and eat the same thing. and I'm going to be here for you in that moment, I think is so incredibly powerful and don't give up on them. I think the mentality of recovery is inevitable and I'm going to stick with you until you get there is probably the most healing thing that anybody's suffering with an eating disorder. Coming from that place of compassion and non-judgment is so important. And holding that hope, I always say to parents and carers, never underestimate the power of that. I know for me, that Mm -hmm. was definitely something that my family did, even when top professionals said, no, there is no hope and was something that I clung onto with every inch of my being that they still believed. And I don't believe that if that had, if they hadn't held that hope, that I would be here today. So never underestimate the power of that. that. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those that are going into battle with their eating disorders every single day? I will say that while recovery is perhaps the single hardest thing that you will ever do in your entire life, it is 100% worth it. You can take these amazing traits that you have and really put them to great use in the world. And I've met a lot of people with eating disorders, as I'm sure you have, and never once has have I met anybody who has regretted recovering. I can second that. I have met so many people and same thing. No one regrets it. And I think you need to hear that because my goodness, it's tough. And you wake up and you think, I had a client say to me this yesterday, I just don't really want to do it anymore. It's tough. It's hard. I feel like the eating disorder is getting stronger. And I said to her, yeah, it is because you are challenging it head on. 
which is exactly what you need to do. And it is going to feel harder and it is going to get stronger because it doesn't want to lose you. But we're going to keep going. We're not going to give up. And eventually, I always give the analogy of being locked in the car boot and the eating disorder being in the driver's seat and recovery being you eventually getting out of the boot into the passenger seat and eventually into that driver's seat. And we are not stopping until you have your hands on that steering wheel and you are in the driver's seat and you have control over your own life and you're you're on that road to freedom. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. For being here with me today. I wish we were here in person. Either I was actually, I wish I was in California. You could be here in Australia, but I'm going to be selfish and say, I wish I was in California. With you. But I am sure I won't be able to keep myself away from there for much longer. So I'm sure I'll be booking a trip soon and I'll get to come and hug you. But thank you. You are amazing. Thank you not only for being here today, but for everything that you are doing in the eating disorder space, not only in the US, but what I know is going to have such far reaching effects worldwide as well. You are truly incredible. Thank you, Millie. Really appreciate it and have loved our conversation and so value our relationship. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.